Well, stand with me as we turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John. I hope you have God's Word with you. If you uh, don't have a copy of Scripture, I would invite you to use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find our text this morning on page 902 as we uh, continue working our way through the Gospel of John in our morning sermon series. We come to the second half of verse 4 in chapter 16. Today, and we'll take it through verse 15 as the Lord once again wants to focus our attention on the glory and the greatness of His Holy Spirit who is soon to come. So let me pick up that reading for us at the back part of verse 4 and then read through verse 15 and then we'll pray and begin together. So listen as the Lord does speak to you through His perfect word. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. We do ask, Lord, that you would send your Spirit to us now, that he might give us understanding, that we would keep your word and observe it with our whole heart. We know that you are a hiding place, that you are our shield. We long for your salvation, and so give us life according to your promise in Jesus Christ, in the name of our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. There is a certain phrase, isn't there, that... Although it's short, it seems to have no small amount of power in stirring up sorrow in a soul. And that phrase is simply this, I'm leaving. Some of you might know the power that a little phrase like, I'm leaving, can bring unto sorrow and trouble after years and years. Perhaps a spouse comes home and unexpectedly announces, I'm leaving, and everything changes. Or perhaps you're working in your normal place of vocation, and your boss, with whom you have a great relationship, comes into your office and says, hey, I just want you to know I'm leaving. And what was once stable and secure now feels altogether untenable, at least when it comes to that stability and security. Even parents know the power of I'm leaving. Perhaps you've had a child come into your family room or living room at one point, and they say, hey, mom, hey, dad, I'm leaving. 
And however appropriate maybe that leaving actually is, it still has unusual power to stir up sorrow and hardship in the heart. Of course, it happens in local churches like our own too, doesn't it? You're close with another church member and then they unexpectedly tell you, hey, I'm leaving. And it doesn't feel as though the church gathering is ever quite the same. It can even be more public in a certain way when a church leader or even pastor might announce unexpectedly, I'm leaving. And difficulty seems to only come as a result. I'm leaving is a phrase that can easily generate sorrow and and trouble. And we know by this point, when Jesus says in verse 6 of chapter 16 that sorrow has filled the disciples' heart, we know that that sorrow is there because he has said what? I'm leaving. And for the last few paragraphs, the last few weeks of our study in John's gospel, we've seen how Jesus has, has tried to calm the trouble in his disciples' heart. He's commanded them, let not your hearts be troubled. He's given no no small number of promises, no small number of truths that are meant to comfort the heart, yet it's still here in the upper room, listening to this upper room discourse, that Jesus can say to the disciples that sorrow has filled your heart. And he knows that the sorrow is there because he has said, I'm leaving. But in many ways, at long last, finally, what Jesus means to unfold for the disciples is why it's good that he's leaving. Uh, The comfort that he has been trying to get them to understand is, is comfort that he's going to give to them in this passage this morning in a rather stunning way because he's going to say that it's actually quite good that I'm leaving. I'm sure if you were like one of the disciples sitting around that table in the upper room and you heard Jesus say, hey, it's to your advantage that I depart. You might have thought internally and perhaps even voiced audibly. Really? It's good that you're gone? And Jesus is going to say, absolutely. Because it's better to have the Spirit inside you than me beside you. It's a rather stunning comfort that he's going to give to his disciples. It's painting for us again that reality that reminds us that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He knows our hearts better than we even know them. Therefore, he knows what we need better than what we think we need. He knows what the disciples need better than what they think they need. And so it's why he says in that center part of our text in verse 7, it is to your advantage that I'm leaving. I grew up in a church environment that often loved to not just talk about the Holy Spirit in a wonderful way, but I loved to read books about the Holy Spirit, and they seem to have very similar titles, at least in my recollection, titles like The Forgotten God or The Forgotten Person of the Trinity or Rediscovering the Holy Spirit. Clearly, as these titles would want to imply, ordinary Christians tend to undervalue perhaps neglect the work of the Spirit in their life. And I don't know if that would be true of you. Surely it would be true of some of you, undervaluing the Spirit, perhaps neglecting the work of the Spirit in your life. But I do pray that all of us would leave this morning understanding the glory and the greatness that belongs to this third person of the Trinity, this glory and greatness that belongs to the Holy Spirit, such that Jesus can say, it's better that I'm gone so he would come. And so I'm taking as our big idea this morning just those simple words in verse 7. 
about the advantageous reality of the Spirit's arrival. So I want us to think this morning about our great advantage, who of course is the Holy Spirit. And I want us to see in the course of our text three greatness, greatnesses, I could say, that belong to the Spirit and His advantage for us. And the first is this, He brings comfort. Why is it to our advantage? Well, He He brings comfort. Jesus begins, you'll notice as our text begins in this section by saying in verse 4 at the end, I did not say these things to you from the beginning. Now, you want to think carefully, students, about what are the things that he has been saying. You know, if you were with us last week, you, I trust, remember that what Jesus has just told the disciples is that things were getting ready to get quite rough and tough in the world. The world's hatred and hostility displayed towards him would soon be hatred and hostility displayed towards them. They persecuted him, they're going to persecute you, he says. They're going to kill me, they're going to kill you, he says. And evidently, Jesus could clearly have told them all about this in the years previous of his time spent with the disciples, but he says at the end of verse 4, you'll notice I didn't tell you that because I was with you. But now that I'm not going to be with you, it's time for you to be let in more on the inside of what's coming in your life. You know, he's like a a wise parent, isn't he, that knows how much information to share with a child, to share with a son or share with a daughter before maybe too much information just only increases the anxiety. But he says, now I'm getting ready to leave, so it's time for you to understand exactly uh, what's coming. You're not going to have me here anymore, so you need to know that persecution is on the way. But interestingly, you'll notice what he says in verse 5, this kind of gentle, chiding rebuke. He says, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? And it's interesting, in large part, because if you're familiar with the Upper Room Discourse, Peter in John 13, verse 36, said this, Lord, where are you going? (laughs) And then Jesus says, none of you have asked, where are you going? Of course, he knows best. It's probably likely that when Peter was asking his question, he had just heard about Jesus' pending departure, and it had this tone in all likelihood to it of, oh, you're leaving? Not, well, where are you going? It's like, oh, you're leaving? And Jesus wants them to know as he began to unfold the nature of his departure that he wasn't, of course, just going to some other place in Israel or some other place in the known world at the time that he was actually leaving to go to his father. And what was happening along the way, it seems quite clear there in the upper room, is the disciples were, were much more interested in receiving this information of Jesus' departure and, and letting their thoughts about what its significant was, significance was dominate their souls. So understand what was troubling them. Yes, he was leaving, Part of that trouble was coming from the fact that they weren't asking him, well, hey, explain further. Where are you going? Why are you going there? And it's a pattern that so often belongs to many a Christian's experience. Something happens. Trouble comes. Sorrow arrives. But you just begin to try to answer that question of why has it happened? according to your own wisdom, to your own insight, to your own discernment, never actually going to the Lord and asking, hey, why has this happened? What are you doing? Why are you taking me there? That our own wisdom, our own turning in ourselves only tends to not just poorly calm 
the trouble, actually excites and churns up the trouble evermore. And so when he gets to the point, he cuts to the heart, you'll notice in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's almost as though he's saying, Brothers, at long last, this is the essential thing that you need to understand about the fact that I'm leaving. He says, It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So advantage number one of the Holy Spirit is he brings comfort. Jesus says it's to your advantage. It's better for you that I leave. I sat with a young man aspiring to ministry earlier this week, and he was talking to me about various options he has to pursue in gospel ministry as these things often go Some opportunities were nearby, some were far away, and as these things often go, we talked through the various possibilities that he has, and he spoke about the advantages and disadvantages of this one compared to the advantages and disadvantages of this one, and I think we can be quite sure that if you had asked the disciples there in the upper room, where would you put Jesus' departure in the columns of your own assessment, disadvantage or advantage? All of them, the 11 men there in the room, would have said, that's, that's definitely a disadvantage. But Jesus says, no, actually, it's, it's to your advantage that I go away. And kids, we want to even ask and answer that question of why. Why is it to their advantage that Jesus goes away and sends the Holy Spirit? Well, there's two simple things, I think, that we can point to even theologically and biblically about the advantage of the Holy Spirit coming with Christ's departure. The first is that his comforting presence is internal. The Spirit's comforting presence is internal. There's a story in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers where uh, the Spirit of the Lord that had resided on Moses, it fills up these 70 elders in Israel and they go about praising and, and proclaiming there in Israel and because someone always has to complain, someone complains, What are these elders doing? And Moses says, I wish that everyone had this spirit upon them. And what happens here in the ministry of Jesus, what the law could not accomplish, what Moses could not accomplish, is what Jesus is going to accomplish, which is pour out his spirit into the hearts of all of his people. Because Jesus is no longer going to be merely external with his disciples. He's going to be internal in his disciples. Wherever they go, he's going to go. Wherever they are, he's going to be, which is actually the second truth that you need to see, that not only is his comforting presence internal, the Holy Spirit's comforting presence, secondly, is global. I mean, you could pick almost any scene in the gospel, couldn't you? But perhaps just think with me about the Mount of Transfiguration. It's there that the three... Disciples, Peter, James, and John are at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah. With the other disciples, the other nine at the time, they're at the bottom of the mountain, and guess what? Jesus is not there. He's only with three of them. He's not with all of them. And what he's saying now, by my resurrection that's coming, my ascension that's soon to follow, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all my people. So that my presence is not just internal, my presence is global. That every one of my people, no matter where they are 
will have me inside them as they go about this mission to glorify my name among all the nations. Why is it better that Jesus' physical body be no longer beside his disciples? Well, because his spirit is going to be inside them. Presence that's all for comfort, that's internal and global. Answer number two about why it's so advantageous according to Jesus. The Spirit not only brings conviction, I'm sorry, the Spirit not only brings comfort, but secondly, He brings a conviction. You'll see what He says in verse 8. When the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. We've mentioned in recent weeks, if you've been with us, how Jesus has been depicting the Spirit's work in his disciples, through his disciples, for his great glory and name, Christ's extension to the ends of the nations. He's so often used this language. It came about in chapter 14 with this language of an advocate, this language that comes from the first century courtrooms, this legal world of Jesus' time. And he's actually calling upon that again. He's speaking here about the Spirit as the Lord's prosecuting attorney. That's the way you're meant to think about him in verses 8 through 11. He's the Lord's prosecuting attorney. I'm going to go away and send him, and he's going to come and convict. He's going to expose the world of their sin. He's going to convince the world of their guilt. He's going to prosecute the case for the truth of Jesus Christ. And you'll see he, he talks about the Spirit's conviction in, in three simple ways. The first is that he will convict, convict concerning sin. You look at verse 9. Concerning sin, he brings conviction because they do not believe in me. And it is important that you recognize, even with these three parts of the Spirit's conviction, that what Jesus is immediately and he's originally talking about a prophecy about the coming of the Holy Spirit that's going to be fulfilled in the disciples' lives on that day of Pentecost. That there's this ongoing convicting reality, yes, uh, to the Spirit's work in us of conviction, but originally he's speaking about what's going to happen when that Spirit falls at Pentecost. He's going to convict the world, Jesus says, concerning sin because they didn't believe in me. So maybe you just need to think with me for a few minutes about Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit fell there on that day at Pentecost and Peter preached a sermon. These people that did not believe in Jesus to such an extent that they crucified Jesus, what does Peter say? You killed him. You crucified him. What do they respond with at the end of that sermon? Do you remember a question? What must we do to be saved? Because what had the Spirit done? Convicted them concerning their sin and their unbelief. There's conviction concerning sin. You see also conviction concerning righteousness. Verse 10, Jesus says, It's concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Of course, part of the great tragedy of the unbelief of the Jewish people and even the Jewish leaders' opposition to Jesus was not merely that they didn't believe in him, it was that they counted him unrighteous. He who was perfect in his righteousness, he who had no guilt, they thought was guilty enough to be crucified. And as the New Testament later reflects on Jesus' resurrection, they use this language the apostles so often do of its vindicating power. That it's in his resurrection and ascension that he's declared to the world to be righteous. The Spirit comes to convict concerning sin, righteousness. You'll notice also concerning judgment, verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged. 
It was there in the preaching of the gospel of a crucified Savior that we know that Satan was cast out, that it was there that this engineer behind the crucifixion of Jesus is exposed as altogether faulty and defeated as a later apostolic writing will declare. It was there at the cursed cross of Calvary that God triumphed over his enemies. Cosmic forces of darkness in the heavenly places. The devil himself defeated, judged, cast out because of the truth of Jesus. That judgment, of course, that comes upon all those that ultimately reject Jesus. So the Spirit is our advantage because he brings comfort. The Spirit is our advantage because he brings conviction. Sometime last fall, I was at a class at the seminary and we were talking in the course of that class about the proper use of pronouns in preaching. And what I mean is this. I was telling the students how so often, I think in our age perhaps especially, Many preachers love to only use pronouns of we and us. We must repent of our sin. Let us look to Jesus Christ in the fullness of faith. And I told them how uh, preaching that is empowered by the Holy Spirit is familiar, of course, with those kind of pronouns, but also is very much okay at pointing fingers and saying, you must repent. You must look to Jesus And I've done this long enough by this point that I was expecting the hand to raise towards the ceiling. And soon a hand was raised towards the ceiling and began to speak about, well, don't you think it's better in this context that we always include ourselves in the application lest it seem as though we're preaching down at church members? You must repent. And the student engaged altogether humbly in the discussion and it was quite profitable as we spun it out for a few minutes. And of course, uh, what we were talking about is, yes, there's a both and reality, but all true preaching understands there must be conviction and confrontation that does say you must repent of sin. You must receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I was thinking about that this week when I was reading an old biography of a preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher that was quite powerful in his convictional preaching. And the author of that book said, quote, present-day religion far too often soothes the conscience instead of awakening it and produces a sense of satisfaction and eternal safety rather than a sense of unworthiness and likelihood even of eternal damnation. I wonder how comfortable you are in hearing the Spirit's conviction. It's so true that when we gather on the Lord's Day and hear God speak to us through His Word, the Spirit sweep through the declaration of Jesus Christ, that we can be quite sure that what the Spirit is so often wanting to do is comfort sorrowful hearts. But let us understand that so much of the Spirit's work is reproving, is Rebuking? How often do you gather, perhaps here on Sunday mornings, eager for the Spirit's conviction? Eager to hear the Spirit's warning? Eager to hear the Spirit's reminding that if you don't repent, you too will be judged? Because, of course, it's without that conviction of sin. I promise there's no sweetness in salvation. It's without that conviction of guilt That the full and final, the free forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ, it won't mean anything to you. The Spirit brings comfort. He brings conviction. Thirdly, we see, He brings clarity. 
Jesus moves now in verse 12 through 15 rather seamlessly from the Spirit's mission in the world to the Spirit's mission in the church. And evidently, he's got many things that he wants to say to his disciples, but he knows by this point the disciples are almost listened out. They just can't take any more. You'll notice what he says, verse 12, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. And Jesus, of course, is the wisest teacher who ever lived, and so he has wisdom that far too often perhaps we need that he has, which is you know when to stop talking. Preachers know when to stop preaching. And you'll notice as even the upper room discourse continues, he moves on for a few more paragraphs. It's not as though he stopped talking to the disciples as much as what comes at the conclusion of the upper room discourse is really Jesus just reiterating some principal points that he's already said. He's not adding new information as just as he's giving further elaboration on points that he's already made. And that's true. You'll notice verse 13, what he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Uh, you just kind of can circle that phrase at the beginning of verse 13. He will guide you into all truth. You disciples are going to be guided into by the Spirit's power, a full understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Spirit's going to guide you into an understanding of how the Old Testament scriptures point to me, how I am the sum and substance of all of God's promises. That same promise belongs to you in the Holy Spirit, that he comes and he'll guide you into all truth. How many times have maybe you experienced that for years and years, maybe even decades and decades, you've been walking faithfully with Jesus Christ, and then something is said, something is read, and it's just like, it clicks. And you think, why did I not see that before? How is it that I heard so often that truth, and now all of a sudden it makes sense? Well, it's because the Spirit is guiding you into all truth, and I would want you to even place some wonderful appreciation on that verb, guide you into all truth. Uh, far too many teachers and preachers are really good at driving people into the truth as though they had a spiritual whip. Can't parents be the same? But when the comforter comes, he guides you patiently, lovingly into truth. It's actually a word that Jesus has already used, this word guide, in the Gospel of John to speak about leading blind people. Patiently, faithfully, clearly, guiding them into the truth. And it's the fullness of Trinitarian truth. You'll notice verse 14 and 15, he will glorify me, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So students understand that simple Trinitarian glory that belongs to the Spirit's work. Jesus is saying, all that the Father has, I have. All that the Spirit has, the Son has. There's a fullness of Trinitarian glory. There's a fullness of Trinitarian experience. There's a fullness of the Trinitarian life that flows through the Holy Spirit into the hearts of God's people. Do you see why it's our great advantage that the Spirit has come? For he brings comfort, conviction. He brings clarity into all truth. There's this old story of a valley preacher in Wales, during the Welsh revival of the early 1900s, 
who had heard that a poor preacher up in the north of the land had, had preached this wonderful sermon and to much revival effect that hundreds of people had been genuinely converted through his preaching of this singular sermon. So the valley preacher decides to get on his horse one day and he rides north to the poor preacher's cottage to discover the power behind the preaching. So he knocks on the door, walks in, and says, I need to know where that sermon came from. Well, the poor preacher takes him into the family room, threadbare carpet, shelves that are nearly empty, and says, hey, look out the window. And so the valley preacher looks out the window. And this poor preacher says, I was up one night, desperate for souls to be saved, and I just looked out the window, praying all night long for the Lord to convince my church of its guilt, for the Lord to convince my people of Jesus Christ. And I kept looking out of the window, and then the sun came up, and he said, it's as though the sermon came with it, and the Holy Spirit gave me the power. And I tell you that because it's so true, isn't it, in the Christian life and even in churches that we think certain techniques, certain programs, certain ministries will bring the power from on high. Oh, and Jesus promises it. I'm going to leave and clothe you, apostles, with a power from on high. You need only ask for it, is what he tells you in the room today. So what I want to think about here at the end are two things fundamentally true of a church that knows the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, two things that are very much present in our passage, two things that we'll close with this morning. The first is that we need to see, we need to know the necessity of the Holy Spirit. He's telling these apostles that, of course, there's nothing in their coming ministry, there's nothing in their coming labor for his mission that's any way possible apart from the Holy Spirit's arrival. It's like a fulfillment of this Old Testament prophetic word where the prophet Zechariah said, not by might, nor by power, declares the Lord, but by my spirit it's going to be done. Surely there's application for us in McKinney, Texas, not by building expansions, not by more groups, not by certain things being met by way of preferences, but it's only by my spirit that any good will come. The way in which you prize the necessity of the spirit, the New Testament says, is that you pray for it. You walk holy before the Lord, lest you grieve the spirit. You showing forth the necessity of the spirit in your life this week means training yourself for that godliness, that holiness without which anyone can see the Lord, and asking the Spirit to come. Because, of course, apart from the Spirit, we have no hope of power or presence. The second thing you need to see is not just the necessity of the Holy Spirit, it's the centrality of Christ, because look again at verse 14. Jesus says that first phrase of verse 14, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. Someone has said before that the Spirit has a spotlight ministry. He's a spotlight operator spiritually speaking. It's as though he's always in the rafters of the heart, shining that spotlight on Jesus Christ. The Spirit's not coming to amplify himself, Jesus says. The Spirit is coming to glorify me. So therefore, apostles, you must be centered on the truth about me. 
No doubt in our own lives, no doubt in our own homes, no doubt even in this very church we can so often get off-center, can't we? Thinking, preaching, proclaiming, desiring things that aren't the centrality of Christ in all things, that which is the meat and the marrow of Christianity, which is just Jesus Christ himself. We can be so occupied in election year like this one with politics and governments and laws and forget that there is a king who is reigning even now. With preferences and personal desires of what's going to come, forgetting that he's poured out the spirit into our hearts that already gives us the peace and unity that we need. Forgetting that he has poured out into our hearts the greatest advantage that any person could ever receive, a spirit who brings comfort, conviction, and clarity Thus, of course, the question really is, do you know that advantage? And do you possess that advantage? Because as Jesus has left to his Father's right hand in heaven, he has not left you, but poured out your spirit, his Spirit into your very heart. And you need only ask him today to do that. And you'll know that great advantage of the Spirit's ministry. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help in which to prize the Holy Spirit, to glorify your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we want to know that a comfort and conviction that the Spirit alone can bring, that our minds might even leave this day with the clarity of your beloved Son, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.